Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to move our discussion into cardiac pathology. This is going to be split into several talks. We want to go through some of the disease processes that we can see today. We did a talk earlier on the valvular disease processes. I encourage you to go listen to that if you haven't already. Today, we want to discuss coronary blood flow and then go into heart failure, as well as obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. And again, we want to do several more talks on the cardiac pathology with different disease processes that can occur, but that's what we want to focus on today. So Tanner, do you just want to give us a brief review quick of the flow through the heart before we move on? So on the right side of the heart, you have the blood coming in through your superior and inferior vena cava. It's going to come in through your right atrium. It's going to go through your tricuspid valve into your right ventricle. There you're going to go through your pulmonic valve into your pulmonary circulation. That will come back into the heart there on the left atrium, go through your mitral valve or your bicuspid valve. That will go to your left ventricle. There you're going to have ejection there from your left ventricle through your aortic valve out into the aorta and then into the rest of your systemic circulation. With that in mind, the first thing we're going to talk about today is your coronary blood flow and specifically when that goes wrong here where you have an MI. So coronary perfusion pressure is going to be your aortic diastolic pressure minus your left ventricular and diastolic pressure. In order to maximize your coronary blood flow, you're going to want to increase your aortic pressure while decreasing that left ventricular pressure. Perfusion will happen during diastole, so as the blood from the aorta can flow back into the coronary arteries. If your left ventricular end diastolic pressure is too great, then it will compress those vessels and prevent adequate blood flow back into your coronaries. Oxygen delivery to the coronary arteries will be decreased when you have an increased heart rate. If the vessels are constricted, you'll have decreased oxygen delivery. If you are anemic or if you have decreased PaO2, if you're acidotic and you have a shift of your P50 to the left, this will cause your hemoglobin to hold onto the oxygen just like any other body system there. And so you're going to have that hemoglobin holding onto it rather than giving that oxygen to the coronary tissue there. Oxygen demand will increase when there is more need for contractility. So if you have increased heart rate, increased afterload, so you have more of a pressure there to push against, or if you have increased end diastolic pressure, or volume, this is going to be all things that are going to increase your oxygen demand. And again, this will just require that you have more of that blood flow or higher concentration of saturated hemoglobin there moving into the coronary arteries. And so this can be part of the equation that's causing a problem here if you're having an MI. So if you're suspecting an MI here, then you are going to want to do a little bit of problem solving. If you suspect the problem is to a uh, low oxygen supply, then you need to assess if they need more PaO2 or hemoglobin. You need to figure out if it's a saturation problem or if they, again, just don't have enough hemoglobin. If the patient is too acidotic or if the aortic diastolic blood pressure is too low, then you may need some vasoconstriction. 
if the left ventricular end diastolic pressure is too high, then you may need uh, inotrope to fix this problem and give you a little more kick there and improve that pressure in the left ventricle. If you suspect the cause is related to demand, so this is where you need to determine, well, what's causing that demand? So do we have a tachycardic picture? There you could give a beta blocker. Is this because of increased SVR? And so this is causing that ventricle to pump really hard against a clamp down system. Then you could give a vasodilator or you could increase your anesthetic gases or something like that if you're in the middle of a case. Or you can think about, okay, is our left ventricular end diastolic pressure too high? Then you could give some nitroglycerin or something that will reduce the preload. It's important to work through your differentials. There's several different causes for what could be actually causing the infarct. There's also several different branches off of that. So once you decide, okay, is this a demand issue? Is this an actual blood supply issue? Uh, then from there, you need to decide, you know, what is causing that issue and what's underlying there. And then from there, we can treat again. It's a broad range of things, all treating the same end goal, but very different in your management, either from vasoconstriction or even going to vasodilators and decreasing preload and things like that. So next, let's talk about ventricular compliance. So this is the idea that as the ventricle gets more volume, the pressure would not rise significantly due to the fact that it's the ability of the chamber to accept more fluid without increasing that pressure. If a patient has, let's say, concentric hypertrophy, so if you recall from our valvular discussion, concentric hypertrophy is the idea that the myocardium is going to form more sarcomeres in parallel and become thicker, and it's usually due to a pressure overload. So we see this with hypertension, chronically that the ventricle is having to push against, so that really increased afterload, or aortic stenosis due to that narrowing of the valve that it's pushing against. Also seen with hypertrophic obstructive cardiomyopathy, older age, et cetera, just the ventricle becomes less compliant in this case. And so as the ventricle gets more volume, the pressure is going to go up dramatically compared to a healthy ventricle because it's not going to be able to fill well with that increase in volume. So AKA in these patients, the pressure in the left ventricle is really high for a given volume. Patients with eccentric hypertrophy or dilated cardiomyopathy, if you recall, this is when the myocardium forms more sarcomeres in series, so it just extends that ventricle into a larger radius without thickening the walls. And so this allows for more volume to be accepted. So this ventricle has great compliance because it can accept a lot of volume while keeping that pressure low. So examples of when this type of a heart picture forms is aortic insufficiency or mitral insufficiency, which results in an increased volume in that left ventricle, and the ventricle is able to accept that volume well. So next, let's move into heart failure. Heart failure is the inability of the heart to either fill or eject blood enough to fully satisfy the requirements of the body with oxygen. So this can either be a filling problem or an ejection problem. You can have two types of heart failure either left side or right side. Left side, you just have to think that the blood is always going to move backwards from where the problem's at. So in left side heart failure, blood is going to move back into what resided prior to the left side of the heart, which is going to be your pulmonary vasculature. So you're going to have pulmonary congestion, pulmonary edema, and if it is significant enough, it can even go all the way back to the right side of the heart and cause damage to the right side of the heart and failure of the right side of the heart. So... If there is right-sided heart failure, 
typically, I kind of already alluded to this, the most common cause of right-sided heart failure is left-sided heart failure. But a result of right-sided heart failure is going to be a backup of blood from the right side of the heart into the systemic circulation on the venous side. So you're going to form peripheral edema, jugular vein distension, systemic venous congestion, hepatomegaly, et cetera. In terms of classifying heart failure, class one is where you're going to have no alterations in symptoms with physical activity. So the heart is going to be in this heart failure picture, but not significant enough to really see any symptoms. Class two is when you're going to form symptoms when the patient is exerting themselves. Class three is when symptoms develop with less than ordinary exertion. And class four is when symptoms develop when the patient's completely at rest. So the difference between systolic heart failure and diastolic heart failure, systolic is going to be due to a decreased ventricular systolic wall motion caused by either coronary artery disease, chronic pressure overload, or volume overload. So AKA, what does this mean? It means the ventricle can't pump enough blood out well enough. So your EF is going to be low, meaning that from what volume we had to begin before systole, we're not going to get a lot of it out. And so if remember EF is the idea of how much of that original blood do I pump out, it's not going to be very high. It's going to be typically below 40% in this case to be classified as systolic heart failure. So the volume inside that ventricle is going to be high at the end of that systolic period because we're not getting enough blood out. Most commonly, this is seen in middle-aged men. And then diastolic heart failure is going to be the abnormal ventricular relaxation and reduced compliance caused from ischemic heart disease, chronic hypertension, or progressive aortic stenosis. So this ventricle has a hard time filling with enough volume, but the contractility remains intact. So that small volume that is in the ventricle is able to be pumped out. So we're still able to preserve that ejection fraction, that that volume is still able to be pushed out, but just keep in mind that it's a lower volume to begin with because we are not able to fill as much. This is most commonly seen in elderly women, and then the left ventricle and diastolic pressure is going to be increased and then back up eventually into the left atrium and then back up into the pulmonary circuit. So with that in mind, which one do you think is going to be concentric hypertrophy, the diastolic heart failure picture or the systolic heart failure picture? So concentric would be your diastolic. And the way I think of this is because of your diastolic heart failure. So this is where you're having trouble in the diastole portion of the heart cycle. So this is where you should be getting filling of that ventricle. If you have a really wide radius, if you have a lot of volume there, so that's going to be your eccentric type picture, then you would not have an issue with your diastolic. You would have an issue with your systolic function. And so for me, that's just how I keep it straight in my mind. If you have diastolic problems, this is going to be a decrease in your filling. Your decrease in your filling is going to be more due to a thick wall decrease radius compared to your systolic there where you have a very wide radius. You just have a difficult time actually pumping and squeezing because you have such a thin wall there on your ventricle. Perfect. All right. So moving on with heart failure, it's important to think about kind of the progress here. So when a ventricle starts to fail, in order to maintain your cardiac output, it's going to change the heart rate to still maintain perfusion to the rest of the body. So it's going to change your afterload while increasing stroke volume. The thing that you need to keep in mind here though, is that your myocardial remodeling will begin here as you start to see these changes. 
So when your ventricle starts to fail, your sympathetic nervous system is going to be activated. This is to maintain your systolic blood pressure here. This is going to do this by causing constriction of the vessels. Specifically, your RAS system is going to be activated here. And so you'll see basically an overall constriction or an increase in your systemic blood pressure by this constrictive picture. If your cardiac output is low, then you're going to see an increase in your heart rate to maintain the cardiac output. This just makes sense. If your cardiac output is lower, then you're just going to need to replicate that lower volume more and more times to still see adequate perfusion. If you're in diastolic heart failure, then tachycardia will actually result in decreased filling time and this will decrease your cardiac output. Again, as we just talked about, if you're in diastolic heart failure, this is going to be your concentric remodeling. This is going to be where you have thick walls and you have very small amount of volume. And then now you're just adding insult to injury there. If you have tachycardia, now you're going to have less volume in an already decreased ventricle there. And so you'll just see an overall decrease in your cardiac output. Something to bring up here is the Frank Starling curve. Typically, as your left ventricular end diastolic pressure or volume increases, then you're going to see a higher stroke volume. This is because the greater tension on that ventricular wall has greater contractility, and therefore you're going to have that greater stroke volume. In heart failure, however, the contractility is going to be decreased, and so you'll see less stroke volume for the same corresponding increase in your left ventricular and diastolic pressure. Remember that your ANP or atrial natriuretic peptide and B-type natriuretic peptides are released in response to your increased pressure in your atria and ventricles. So this is going to stimulate diuresis and vasodilation. This is just another way that our heart will regulate itself and try to manipulate and change things to maintain homeostasis. Cardiac remodeling is this idea where you will see changes in the actual myocardium because of changes in pressure or if you have volume overload. Myocardial dilation will occur from your volume overload, while myocardial concentric hypertrophy results from the chronic pressure overload. This is something that we've talked about at great length already, so I don't feel like we need to go into it too much here. But just keep in mind that if you're going against pressure, that's where you're going to see concentric hypertrophy. And then if you have increased volume, that's where you're going to see your eccentric hypertrophy. In order to reverse uh, ventricular remodeling for systolic heart failure, they're going to want to inhibit the RAS system with ACE inhibitors. You can see aldosterone inhibitors or ARBs. You can give beta blockers. You can give diuretics. You can give vasodilators. For diastolic heart failure, there's not going to be too many drugs that will help the remodeling there. Again, this is because of that stenotic valve here where you're having increased pressure after this ventricle. And so there's not really a volume issue here. And so that's why you won't see the same type of medications used here for the diastolic heart failure. So for systolic heart failure, the goal here is we want to reduce the afterload to decrease the myocardial workload, but we don't want to drop the aortic diastolic pressure too much because as Tanner talked about earlier, this will impair coronary supply. So to do this, we're going to give inotropes to help with contractility. 
And we want to keep heart rate on the higher side in order to maintain that cardiac output due to that lower stroke volume. And additionally, we want to try to maintain our preload rather than reduce it too much because we want to maintain that cardiac output. For diastolic heart failure, remember it results in that concentric hypertrophy. So we're really at risk here of compressing the coronary vasculature and reducing coronary blood flow. So our goal is to keep afterload on the higher side because we want to maintain that coronary blood flow and maintain that drive of pressure from the aortic diastolic blood pressure that'll flow into the coronary system. So we can use alpha-1 agonists like phenylephrine rather than using ephedrine to treat the low blood pressure simply because that will constrict the vasculature more while also lowering the heart rate. And the goal here well, as well is to lower the heart rate because it will provide more time for that heart to fill as well as provide perfusion to the coronary arteries. So that's why NEO is a really good choice here because it one increases the aortic diastolic blood pressure, but also decreases the heart rate. And so it kind of maximizes our flow through the heart while also providing flow to the coronary arteries. We also want a higher preload to help fill that non-compliant ventricle. So remember with that really thick musculature on that ventricle, it's going to take a lot of pressure to fill that ventricle with enough volume to provide a good stroke volume and cardiac output. So we want to keep that preload on the higher side to give as much volume as we can into that non-compliant ventricle. And right heart failure, this is most commonly caused by left side heart failure, as I talked about before. If our pulmonary vascular resistance is increased, this is going to cause that right ventricle to work a lot harder to pump blood out into that pulmonary vasculature. So if you remember from our pulmonary anesthesia talk, we discussed things that are going to increase our PVR. One of the big things is going to be when alveolar hypoxia or any type of dead space is going to cause our hypoxic pulmonary vasoconstriction reflex, which is where any of the vasculature from the pulmonary system in a dead spaced area is going to constrict to provide more blood flow through the area that is actually getting oxygen. Well, this is going to increase our PVR. So this will increase the likelihood of right-sided heart failure. Another thing that can cause an increase in PVR is acidosis. So we do not want the patient to be acidotic. Things that we can do to help this are going to be drugs such as nitric oxide. This is going to reduce the PVR. Lastly, we want to talk about obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. So if you've ever heard of a high school athlete dropping dead while in competition and you heard it from a cardiac event, this is most likely the cause. So this is a left ventricular outflow track obstruction, and this is caused by an autosomal dominant disease, which results in hypertrophy of the intraventricular septum. So the wall that splits the right ventricle from the left ventricle is our intraventricular septum. So we're going to have an enlargement of that septum, and you're also going to have a mitral valve that the anterior leaflet is prone to moving forward in the anterior direction and blocking the opening from the left ventricle up into the aorta during the systolic motion of that left ventricle. So two things there. The intraverticular septum is going to be enlarged, and then a leaflet from the mitral valve is going to kind of move over and block the pathway from the top of that ventricle into the aorta. So if you can picture this with me here, your ventricle is going to start to funnel its way down at the top left portion where it gets that aortic valve. So prior to even getting to the aortic valve, I'm not at the aortic valve yet, I'm going to have a narrowing 
of the top left portion of the left ventricle due to that mitral valve leaflet moving over and that the interventricular septum being enlarged and kind of narrowing the space in that top left part of the ventricle. So in a way, this kind of makes a stenotic picture, but it's not due to aortic stenosis. The valve is totally fine, but we have stenosis on the top left point of the ventricle that the ventricle has to pump harder to get blood through. So really, there's a sandwich effect here between that septum and the mitral valve leaflet. And so we want to do things that dilate that space and that sandwich rather than constrict it. Unlike aortic stenosis, this is something that can fluctuate. We can dilate the space and constrict the space, whereas aortic stenosis, the valve is going to be stuck as stenotic. So that's the nice thing about this is we can do things to manipulate and allow blood to flow through easier. So in order to get blood to pass through this narrowing, we want to increase our preload. Increasing this volume will dilate the space. That makes sense. And it'll increase the amount of blood that we can shoot through that space. So we can do this by decreasing heart rate because this allows more time to fill the ventricle with fluid. So we can either give a beta blocker, a calcium channel blocker, etc. The other thing to note here is the greater the force of the contraction, the more obstruction that occurs. So when I'm really contracting hard with the ventricle, that's when that sandwich between the intraventricular septum and that mitral valve leaflet are going to converge on each other and create an obstruction. So this makes sense why athletes that have this issue occur when they are in their sport or exercising because that ventricle is having to have a higher contractility during the exertion. So we want to lower the contractility. So AKA, we don't want to use inotropes. We also want to increase the pressure in the aorta. So this may sound counterintuitive because when I first read this, I thought to myself, well, if the pressure in the aorta is higher, I'm not going to be able to squeeze as much blood out of the ventricle. However, we're simply trying to dilate this space. So it's not like aortic stenosis where it's permanently narrowed. So when we create more pressure from the aortic side and the aortic valve opens, it's going to help dilate this obstruction at the top of the ventricle and allow blood to flow through. Hopefully that makes sense. So something that you want to give here is phenylephrine because Neo will decrease your heart rate for one, which is something we want to do. And it will also cause an increase in that aortic blood pressure, which is also what we want to do. So we don't want to give vasodilators. Keep that in mind. We don't want to dilate and decrease afterload, which is why neuroactual anesthesia is probably not a good idea because it'll decrease our afterload. We also don't want to give histamine-releasing drugs to these patients because histamine will increase our heart rate and decrease our blood pressure, which is the exact opposite of what we want to do. So question for you. We talk about drugs throughout our episodes that we've done that release histamine. So what is a muscle relaxant that releases histamine? Uh, pancuronium and I think Achicarium. Awesome. So yeah, if you don't remember that, I encourage you to go back and listen to our talk on the muscle relaxants. But those are perfect examples of meds that we don't want to do because they release histamine. We also want to be mindful of the fact that we don't do too much positive pressure ventilation or too high a PEEP because this will decrease our preload. And so by decreasing our preload, then we're not going to have enough volume filling into that ventricle to dilate that space. Hopefully this makes sense. This has been a good talk. I know there's a lot more pathology that we can do with the cardiac side of things. So we're going to do more talks to get into those in the future, but hopefully this is a good review of heart failure, the differences between systolic and diastolic, as well as obstructive hypertrophic cardiomyopathy. I know this was something I always was a little confused about and going through this talk really helped understand it better for me. So hopefully this will provide you with the means to take better care of these type of patients. 